Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And today we're here to talk about the Federal Circuit and the recent rulings that are precedential. We have with us one of uh, the nation's leading appellate experts in Brian Matsui from MOFO. Uh, Brian also helps drive MOFO's frequent, if not weekly, blog on Federal Circuit activity. Uh, but today, rather than focus on uh, repeating what was in the blog, uh, there, we wanted to have a discussion about two particular cases and what they might mean for the future. Uh, the first one is the SRI case, which is an incredibly old, old case. It's been uh, dragging around since 2013. Um, and we're getting closer to final resolution, uh, not quite there yet. But Brian, tell us why patent litigators should care about SRI. Well, thanks a lot, Wayne. I'm very happy to be doing this. Uh, SRI is a pretty interesting case, both from a process perspective and from a legal perspective. I think one of the reasons why I thought this case was interesting is it's a comeback case. And you don't see that all that often. It's a case that basically was decided once by the federal circuit, and then it went back down, and then it came back up again, and then it was decided again. And you sort of have to feel for the district court in this case. Now, there were actually were two district court judges in there, but the district court basically got vacated or reversed twice in a row on this. And I think the second time, the one we're, the one we're going to talk about, it, it may feel not entirely fair that it did actually get reversed. Um, Wayne, you mentioned this case was way back from 2013 when the complaint was filed. Um, the case really is about willfulness now. I mean, I think the thing to talk about is, is the issue of willfulness. It, this is a, obviously it's a patent infringement action that SRI is the patent owner and they sued Cisco as the defendant. And about five years or so ago, a jury found that Cisco directly and indirectly infringed SRI's patents and the infringement was willful and awarded $23 million in damages. And then the district court enhanced the damages, it doubled them. That set up this, this first appeal. And the panel was judges Lori O'Malley and Stoll and Judge Stoll wrote the opinion. Now it's a 2019. And in examining the willfulness issue, the, the panel said that the Supreme Court said in HALO, the sort of contact, conduct warranting enhanced damages has been variously described in our cases as willful, wanton, malicious, bad faith, deliberate, you know, the characteristics of a pirate. And then looking at the evidence, the court said, they said the evidence wasn't sufficient because Cisco's conduct didn't rise to the level of wanton, malicious, and bad faith behavior. And so then it basically sent it back for the district court to decide whether or not it met this standard. So that's what basically was the setup of the case. And then it came back to the, uh, the district court and the district court basically looked at that, that standard and said, huh, you know, um, this federal circuit is telling me that I need to say that the level of conduct has to be wanton, malicious and bad faith behavior. But it noted in a footnote that the federal circuit hasn't always been entirely consistent in what willfulness requires. But then it, it was faithful in applying the standard the federal circuit told it to apply. And it said there wasn't enough here. And that's when we get, and sorry for this long background to what happened here just last week in the, in the federal circuit's case. I think that the interesting thing to me, the first interesting thing is there's sort of a mea culpa in this by the panel. 
uh, it's interesting because, as I mentioned, it's a comeback panel, but it has all three judges that are the same. And that's a little bit rare when you have comeback panels. Usually it's, it's at least one, but often it's two judges, but it's not all three. But this time it was all three. And that was probably a good thing because they basically want to, it seems, eliminate some confusion by their reference to that wanton, malicious, and bad faith language in Halo. And they said that they did not intend to create any sort of heightened requirement for willful infringement. And that was sort of the crux of their holding in the case that was decided last week. They said instead, you know, under the Supreme Court's HALO decision, willfulness requires a jury to find no more than deliberate or intentional infringement. And so they applied that standard instead. Well, so I, I mean, the interesting thing about it, Brian, is that you know, the first time they said there wasn't enough information, um, but the next time, I mean, it seems like more than a mea culpa, they came back and said, well, not only did you get it, get it right, but, um, or, or not only do you have the facts that you need, we're not even going to send it back for any more. Everything you need's in the record. We're sorry. You could have decided this a uh, million dollars in attorney's fees earlier. Yeah, I, I think that that was a, definitely an interesting part because when you look at willfulness and then enhancement, whether or not you're going to enhance the damages, you know, is purely something that's within the district court's discretion. And that's basically where you'll have sort of that heightened standard that the federal circuit was talking about. Um, you know, whether or not you're going to enhance it depends upon whether or that there was that wanton, malicious, bad faith type of conduct. And that's what the district court is supposed to consider. But the federal circuit said, we don't even need to, to remand that here. Uh, because they could basically look back at what happened the first time around and say that there was enough evidence in the record to say the district court the first time didn't abuse its discretion in enhancing the damages. So in that sense, it, it was sort of an interesting situation. The, the, the Federal Circuit has a footnote in there which sort of explains why this happened. They noted that um, back in the first appeal, no one basically had told them that the, um, the enhancement went to a period of time that wasn't basically being reviewed. In other words, they said that their, their earlier willfulness determination was based upon conduct that happened before a certain date, May 8, 2012. And they didn't know that the damages that were being applied were all postdating that after all. And so that was the reason why they said they could basically go back and review the actual original enhancement award. Uh, I think that they had to put that in there just to make clear that, you know, this is still the district court's discretion to decide what enhancement is. And it's not something for the federal circuit to go off on its own and do in the first instance. Right. It seems like this really does solidify for trial lawyers that that willfulness will be given a lot of latitude on appeal and that the district courts with their, their jury instructions uh, are going to be given a lot of latitude about putting the issue in front of a jury um, and a lot of latitude in determining what the enhancement is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if, if you had that language of, of willfulness requiring wanton, malicious, and bad faith conduct, it, I imagine it would be very hard to get that in front of a jury in a lot of cases. It seems like something summary judgment 
could be moved on uh, early on in cases, or it just would be hard to sort of convince a jury of that versus what the standard uh, the court said it was, or it is in, in SRI, that it just requires, you know, no more than deliberate or intentional inf infringement. And here, the, the, the Federal Circuit went through and said, you know, here there basically was the fact that the invalidity defense was unreasonable, there was not a reasonable basis for non-infringement, and then there was an inducement verdict. And it said all these things basically were enough to be substantial evidence to support willfulness. So it does open the door for a lot of different arguments to be made to support willfulness. Of course, then once you get that willfulness finding, you'll still have to get it enhanced uh, by showing you know, more, more to the district court. You know what this, this feels like is that we've now come full circle. We're right back to the you know, the time before the federal circuit tried to do its two-part objective subjective test, you know, we're, we're back to 2003 for willfulness and it's, it's wide open. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it plays out in the, you know, the next several cases that come through the federal circuit addressing these types of issues. Well, I'm going to ask you to make a prediction for the future. Do you think uh, patent holders are going to react to this case by being more aggressive with their their willfulness cases and their, their attempts to get in front of the jury and then eventually the judge? I definitely think they will. I think that given the fact that the standard is, is not so heightened that it's going to be in their interest to, to put it in front of the jury. I think that you and I were, you know, would both agree that this is something that is definitely beneficial for the plaintiffs to get in front of the jury as much as they possibly can. Yeah, the, the stats all show that willfulness, you know, even if you don't get it enhanced, is a powerful tool to nudge the jury in the direction of an infringement verdict. Well, Brian, uh, the, the second case, when I first read it, uh, the Vivinet case, you know, it, it looked like kind of standard PTO procedure in appeal wasn't very exciting, uh, but it actually and when you look at it a little deeper, has something in it that I wonder if it's a signal from the federal circuit that they're a little more open to reviewing the USPTO going forward. So can you tell us what happened in Vivinet and whether it's going to matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's an interesting question, both sort of the reviewability aspect as to is this going to change some aspects of reviewability of some PTO actions and also the ultimate will it matter type of question. Uh, the case itself, it's an ex parte re-exam that basically went all the way through to appeal. Uh, the canceled patents were appealed. And the, the backstory is sort of what, what makes this case interesting. Uh, basically, uh, the patent owner sued a defendant and the defendant tried multiple times through IPRs to get these patents, these and other patents basically canceled. And they were unsuccessful with respect to the patent that's at issue in, in the case. And in one of the denials, the PTO basically said that there was basically, you know, serial incremental petitioning. And that was the reason why they were denying it, because they didn't think that that was consistent with the American Invents Act and the IPR process. So a year or so later, this defendant then tries an ex parte re-exam. 
uh, and basically uses a lot of the same arguments, some of them almost identical. It does swap you know, one prior art reference and it files this petition and the patent office this time says, yes, it grants it. There is a substantial new question of patentability and it lets it go forward. Now, the patent owner having defeated all these IPRs, I'm sure was not very thrilled and they basically tried to get the petition terminated, basically saying, look, this person tried all these IPRs and basically they were a serial filer and that was the reason why you denied the IPR. So you shouldn't let it go forward. And the patent office said it didn't have the power to terminate once it was ordered. And it said ex parte re-exams are different because they're basically more in the public interest. But so it, it basically refused to terminate. And then eventually this all went on appeal. And so when it went on appeal, you know, of course it's an ex parte re-exam. So the government is the one that's defending the, the board's decision. It's just the government and the patent owner. And one of the issues was going to be, you know, is this actually a reviewable decision? Because under 35 USC 325D, the patent office has the authority, it has the discretion to decide whether or not to not institute a re-examination if it's based upon, you know, the same art or the same arguments that have been previously presented to it. And since this is an APA case, Generally, under the APA, actions committed to the discretion of the agency aren't subject to review under the APA. And so there seems to be a, a disconnect there, at least when you look at the two statutes, uh, the APA saying you don't review these discretionary decisions and the Patent Act saying that the Patent Office has the ultimate discretion to say that the Federal Circuit could come in and review this. The Federal Circuit ultimately decided that it could, and it relied upon a presumption in favor of judicial review. And so that does create sort of a, a difference, of course, as you know, between this issue and what happens in IPRs, where you can't have uh, institution decisions reviewed at all. Now, there are some different, different statutory language there, but it does create a difference in sort of an outcome when you look at ex parte re-exams now, and then you look at uh, IPRs. As, well, as far as the question is, so, you know, how much is this going to matter going forward? Uh, that's sort of the, the open question. I think that what the court has made clear with this decision is that if you have someone who has consistently tried to get IPRs on patents and failed, and in the process of failing, been told by the patent office that the procedures they have used aren't really proper, that it's basically serial filing of IPRs, then it's not something they can do to just file an ex parte re-exam petition and then expect to have that granted and be allowed to go forward. I think the federal circuit's made clear that it's an abuse of discretion for the patent office to deny the IPR saying that you didn't follow these proper procedures and then turn around and say, but we're gonna ignore that in this ex parte re-exam. Now, the reason why that ultimately may not matter is because the patent office itself can issue ex parte re-exam. It can re-exam any patent on its own. And so as the federal circuit noted, it's decisions narrow in the sense that nothing stops the patent office from turning around and deciding that it wants to review these patents. It just would basically have to do that under its own independent authority 
perhaps in addition to sort of granting the petition by the by the person that petitions for the review. Well, it's hard to hard to look at this case without thinking about Fintiv and uh, the place that 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 case has gotten us to, and it may be some of the the odd outcomes that. Senator Leahy is trying to deal with in uh, his recently proposed legislation to strip the USPTO of some of its discretion on denials. Yeah, it, it, you can definitely see how there could be some eventual interplay on, on things like that. Well, it'll be interesting to see if, if this case is cited as a reason that uh, Leahy's proposal needs to be passed um, and what happens with FinTIF. Of course, if we ever get a a new USBTO director, Fintiv, could could go away with a snap of the fingers. And we need the government not to shut down in order to have some legislation passed too, <laughs> I think. Things well beyond uh, what this podcast can uh, can impact. So, uh, well, Brian, thank you for, for bringing these two cases to our attention and raising the issues that maybe we wouldn't otherwise see. Uh, I hope to see a couple new cases from you in a few weeks.